I'm excited to have with me my friend Dr. David Capes from the Lanier Library in Texas. Uh, we've been friends for a long time, worked on some boards together, we're collaborating on some writing projects together. Um, I'm starting an exciting new series, talking through some material from my book, 50 New Testament Words of Life, with Zondervan Academic. I want a chance to talk with real experts, you know, I, I do my best, <laughs> but I want to talk with real experts like Dr. David here about each book. Uh, of the New Testament that I talk about in my book, and some of the themes uh, from these 15 New Testament words. So actually, I'm here today mm. to talk with David about the Gospel of Matthew. He's doing some work on Matthew, and the, especially the theme of righteousness, and we're going to get into eventually what that means for real life today. So David, I've introduced you a little bit, but I know you're, you know, you started out your career, I think, as a Paul guy. Yeah, I did more Paul stuff, you know. And then you, on. you know, you kind of go back and forth, but now you're you're doing more and more gospels. I know you're teaching gospels. What's some of the stuff you're working on in the? I, I remember you did a great book on. I'm, I think it's called Rediscovering Jesus. Rediscovering Jesus. Yeah, I'm using right. that right now as a textbook. Uh, we we I co-authored that. So co-authored it. Yeah, yeah. But it it was a fun book to do, and where we compared the various gospels and and, and Paul's Jesus and that kind of thing. Hollywood over yeah. against Hollywood's Jesus, you Mormon know, Jesus. and more, the Mormon Jesus yeah. and the Gnostic Jesus and the Muslim Jesus. Jesus figures really highly in Islam, as you may know. Yeah. Uh, so we we wanted to kind of do a book that talked about those things because most of us are going to have Muslim neighbors, maybe, yeah. or Mormon neighbors. So that would help us talk about these things well. But doing that, but I did a lot of stuff on Paul and Paul's Christology early on. Yeah. And I've just loved uh, Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel and all the gospels, really. But, uh, you know, you just kind of settle in on one and you start working you on do. it and you just uh, say, oh, I love this stuff. So so you're working on something on Matthew. What, what are some things you're doing on Matthew? Well, I, I finished a book a while back called Matthew Through Old Testament Eyes. That's and right. in that book, um, I, I asked the sort of the question, the big question was, if we really knew the Old Testament well, how would we read Matthew differently? And but because I think for the author of Matthew and for the people that first received it, they probably knew the Old Testament better than we we do, right? We know some stories. We know some textures here and there. But we don't often know um some of the real details, the kind of things that that people would dig into in those days. So that was the kind of that was kind of pressed the the interest of that book. And you're working on some new stuff. Working on a book now it, uh, with with you actually, <laughs> the Bible in God's World. And I'm looking Scott forward to that. Well. Yeah, working in Matthew Still. I'm teaching a course in South Africa soon at George Whitfield College in Cape Town on Matthew. So doing a lot of Matthew these days, and I'm loving it. Well, speaking of Matthew, before we get into the words of life, I want to just ask you a little bit, you know, since you've done some writing on Matthew, you're probably prepared to think through some of the typical background introductory questions. So, um, you know, can you tell us anything about who is the writer of the first gospel? What, what, What can you say about that, that you feel like you can stand behind? Yeah. Well, you know, there are people that say, you know, begin by saying, well, the gospel is anonymous. You know, there's the, the Matthew's not mentioned, doesn't mention his name. Um, Simon Gathercole's made a really interesting, I guess, I guess in an article, made a really interesting argument saying that just because a person's name was not in the book doesn't mean that they were anonymous to the first readers, that they would have been known. 
And there were all sorts of ways in ancient world that authors could be attached. And, and it wasn't true at the time that in writing histories that most, most writers didn't put themselves in the story, but it just became known. Um, we know that early on that in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have of Matthew, that the title Katamathion, according to Matthew, is there. And of course, the tradition is very strong through Papias and through Irenaeus and some others that it was that it was associated with one of the 12, one of the followers of Jesus. I think there's fairly good reason to continue to think that a traditional authorship of that gospel is likely. And I would I would make the case that writing anything in the ancient world was not really a solo act. It wasn't just a guy sitting down at a desk writing out what he remembered about Jesus. It was much more uh, networked than that. It was, there were co-authors, there were, there were uh, secretaries, there were other people involved. And in some cases, you know, the case has been made and probably right that, that Matthew used Mark you know, as kind of a, 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 a background for it, you know, to, as kind of the structure of it. And then, but gave his own theology, he, he himself theologized through the life of Jesus based upon his experiences of Jesus, based upon uh, the early church, and based upon, I think, probably the needs of his community. So I continue to say, yeah, Matthew, Matthew's the author of, of, of the book. And I think there's fairly good reasons for holding on to that, both in terms of how books like Gospels were written, biographies and such, but also how um, people would have known who the writer is. I told my students not long ago, you know, if you take the cover, in fact, I don't know about your book, but if you take the cover and first few pages off of your book, I'm not sure who would who would know if they would know who wrote wrote your book, right? Because you probably didn't say, well, I need Jay Gupta to say this in my book. Uh, you know, it's on the cover page, it's on the cover. And pretty much after that, we try to disappear, right? In a way, we're just writing. That's right. So I think that's, I think that's similar to what the writers of the Gospels are doing. They're doing a biography of Jesus, but it's a theological biography. And it's one that is designed to proclaim the gospel and to be there as an assurance of things that people may already know about Jesus in some cases, but didn't always know, uh, you know, that some of it is new to them. So you mentioned Mark uh, already and, and, you know, raised the question of um, ordering priority sources. Most scholars today follow that, you know, assumption that Mark is first, they call it Mark and priority. And that Matthew is using Mark, like you said, as some kind of basic outline. Um, so, in your opinion, what is distinctive about the Gospel of Matthew? You know, uh, there are a lot of similarities between Matthew and Mark, but obviously, Matthew is much, much longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Matthew was motivated to, I remember, you know, Francis Watson saying, when you have someone like Matthew come along, they're not saying, you know, hey, have both these books in your library. They're saying, I'm the better version <laughs> of the gospel. I don't know if I would go that far, but yeah, yeah. there's that question of what was Matthew trying to do to improve upon or put his own theological stamp on the story of Jesus? I mean, I think there's a lot of things about that. Gosh, uh, where do you start it? I mean, the very beginning of the book is 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 the account of the, and some translations say the genealogy. I think that's a misreading. I think it's the, the genesis, the origin of Jesus, right? This entire book is about how Jesus 
in his life began. It's the genesis of Jesus. And so from, from the very beginning all the way through, I think there are these Old Testament sort of references and 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 echoes, to use Richard Hayes's language, and allusions that are that we don't find in Mark, but that would be uh, very appealing and interesting and probably uh, persuasive to a Jewish audience at the time. So, I mean, we begin with the genealogy of Jesus. That's unique. I mean, uh, here, I mean, the way it's situated, the way it's ordered, uh, the, the, the little annotations in it are doing some really interesting things. I remember reading the Bible through Nietzsche when I was a kid, you know, and I would always get to the genealogies of Jesus and I would just skip right over that. I didn't care about that. Stuff, I won't right? tell anybody. <laughs> but I would do that. And I know people that have done that, but, but there's some really incredible stuff at the very beginning here mm-hmm. that is going to signal the kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be, the kind of community he's going to build. I mean, he includes women in the genealogy, which is incredible, right. which is just signaling that in this kingdom of God, women are going to have a unique place. You know, they're not going to be second-class citizens or deficient males or whatever. They're going to be really key. And there are a lot of Gentiles sort of that are included as well, which is, again, heading to the back of the book where Jesus says, go into the nations and make disciples of all the nations and teaching them and such. So I think those are those are just some things that you can begin with. And then you've got all these connections of Jesus and teaching. Yeah, Jesus is so this much. master teacher. Sermon on the Mount. His Sermon on the Mount is, the, is as I think Oscar Brooks used to say, is the inaugural address of Jesus, right? Yeah. It's just the, it's the first thing out of the box. He has this th- three-chapter, beautiful, elegant sermon uh, that, that as Matthew has sort of seen it, and, and Jesus is doing all this wonderful teaching. So uh, that's unique. I mean, we don't find that. In Mark, Jesus is more of a miracle worker. There are some teachings of Jesus, but it's really concentrated in Matthew. And I think he's trying to signal that there's that Jesus is the teacher, just like Moses was the teacher of Israel. And Jesus is the prophet and the teacher of Israel now in this day. So I think there are some really incredible things. A lot of things about fulfillment of Scripture here in uh, Matthew, some creative readings of text. Yeah. It's, it's not always a, a, a prophecy that is a prediction that comes true. Some cases it is, but in some cases it's much more evocative and interesting and connecting the Old Testament to the new, how God has worked in the past. Now we see how he's working in the life of Jesus. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Yeah, no, I've heard that explained is why Matthew is placed at the beginning of the canon of the New Testament portion of the canon as a bridge, obviously, between old and new, just like that scribe, yeah. you know, the wise scribe is able to bring treasure to old and new. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. in many ways, Matthew is doing that. Patrick Schreiner has written on some of that uh, in mm-hmm. helpful bridge bridging kind of stuff. Well, I, you know, that that's a good lead in, you know, especially on the teaching of Jesus to the subject of righteousness, which, you know, I focused my first chapter of my book on the word righteousness because um, – Matthew is really interested in righteousness yeah. in a way that's not true of Mark uh, uh, or John. Luke, Luke is also interested, but I just pulled out some t- statistics here. Mark uses dikaiosune two times. I think dikaios at all. He uses mm. that word group two times, John five times, Matthew more than 20. Yeah. 
Now, even if you take into account Mark is much shorter, uh, John is you know approximately the same length as Matthew. Um, five verses twenty three, five verses twenty five. Matthew's five times more interested <laughs> in righteousness than John. It's not that John exactly. isn't interested; he uses different language for uh, this sort of thing. Mm. Um, uh, it's hard to think of righteousness in the abstract, so I'm going to give you a text. Okay. And I would love for you to spitball with me about, you know, this is good for your commentary work, David. David. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> You're going to have to answer to this. So you well, might as well I'm do gonna, it now. I'm going to be referring to this podcast in my, in, in the, in, in the, I'll send you a transcription. Good. Um, okay. So two texts and you can tell me how you would, you know, kind of give me your take on how you would paraphrase this or explain it. So mm. in Matthew, uh, Jesus is getting baptized. Matthew 3. She's getting baptized by John, and John is thinks it's a trick. He says, no, no, you're the Messiah. Yeah. And yeah. he said, Jesus says, let it be so now, for it's proper for us in this way too, and you know how this ends, fulfill mm. all righteousness. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then he consented. Um, I've opened up a bunch of commentaries, and nobody understands this. <laughs> nobody likes to comment on this. because nobody I think likes it's... to comment on I'll give you another text, and you can okay. kind of combo these. Okay. Jesus is giving the Beatitudes, uh, chapter 5. This is verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Clearly, according Mm -hmm. to Matthew, Jesus is really concerned with righteousness. Mm -hmm. Tell me what it is and Mm -hmm. why Jesus is so concerned with it. Well, I, I think one of the things when you we think about the teaching of Jesus, and one of the one of the things you bring about in your book is that theology is about living, right? Mm-hmm. Theology isn't about speculating and and just you know r- rummaging around in your mind. It's about living, yeah. and so I think the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly interested in living. Yes. So uh, starting with the second one first, I, I, I see it as an or an ethical word in some sense, right? It's about it's about what you do. It's not about do you believe the right stuff. It's about what you do. And so the way I've, I've typically paraphrase the idea of righteousness is and, and and it's similar to what you what you said is doing the right thing for the right reason. I like that. You know, when when we do the right thing, now God is the one who determines what the right thing is. We don't determine. It's not a it's not a majority vote. It's not something but personal. But and so that ties us into God's teaching, right? God's God's law. I I have a hard time thinking of righteousness separate from God's teaching in the Old Testament or Jesus's teaching in the New Testament. So uh, when 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 we do the right thing, we we have already been in tune with God because we've been listening to God teach in the Hebrew scriptures. We've been listening to God teach Christ teach uh, as the one who embodies the God of Israel uh, in the New Testament. And so that sets the tone that sets the angle for what righteousness is what right right is and then i think it speaks to our motive as well because later on jesus uh, talks about you know unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and pharisees uh you know you'll never see the kingdom i think was the language there so i i think it i think it 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 goes to the issue of motive what's in the heart Mm -hmm. not just have you done the right act but have you done it for the right reason and again, I think we're, we're thrown back into the teaching of, of God at that point, because being in this covenant with God, this relationship with God provides that motive, provides the right motive for the right, right, right action. All right. Let's say um, 
you know, I don't know if you ever played the game Taboo, but it's this game where <laughs> you have to get someone to say a word, but you can't say certain words related to it. Oh, uh, so let's say okay. I made the word English word righteousness taboo, and you couldn't say it. Oh gosh! How would you translate? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for. Oh gosh! You didn't tell me you're going to do this. I'm stumping you. <laughs> I'm stumping you. Um, you know it's real. It's hard. I'd I want to break down the that. Christianese here, David. Help uh, me. Okay. All right. Um, you can use a few synonyms. You can use a phrase I, if you want. I mean, I, I would. I would say those who hunger and thirst desire for what is good. Yeah. You know, ultimately the good. Yeah. Um. And, and you could tie this all the way back to Genesis when creation is good, 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 very good, et cetera. There is a good that we can pursue. Yeah. And I think the good, the good life, the good community, the good society, all of those things could be in a way synonyms for this, right? I don't know. I like that. That would be, um, that would you know, be that, that reminds me one. of when we call God good. You know, uh, we're not mm -hmm. saying he's delicious. We're not saying he's <laughs> beautiful, even though he is. We're really saying he's righteous. He's, he's perfect. He's trustworthy. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're kind of, I like that. We're kind of using those things. You had mentioned, this is another, this is another stumper. You uh, mentioned the Pharisees and the scribes. And in Matthew right. 5 20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm, this is another mm. one that scholars do not like to come down on yeah, because yeah. it sounds like a quantity, like you have to get to you 50 have points more. or 100 points. I don't think Jesus is saying that because mm. he varies very... In Matthew, Jesus is very critical of the scribes and Pharisees, so he's not really wanting more of what they're doing necessarily. So what do you think he means when he says your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven? A part of that, uh, Nijay, is I, 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 I imagine myself in the audience that day. Yeah. If I had been there with Jesus and Jesus said, your righteousness must exceed there. And I could I can just sort of imagine hitting my head and said, how in the world is that possible? You know? I mean, because these are the most righteous people, the right people, the good people. The, I mean, they're the best of the best. So I, I think that uh, for the people who are there, they could not sort of imagine what that was about. And I think that's why Jesus goes in to begin illustrating what this greater righteousness would look like. It's not really a quantity of it. It's really peeling back the onion to saying, um, it's not just the action, but it is the motive behind the actions, the heart, et cetera. So when he talks about murder, you know, the thing that leads to murder, you know, the anger that leads to murder, he, he really probes the question of anger, you know, what's in the heart. The Pharisees could probably say, hey, me, me, I've never murdered anybody, you know, raise their hand and been proud of it. But, but could they have stayed quite so proud and the moment went, well, what about anger? You know, have you never not gotten angry at anybody? Have you ever not called somebody names in the middle of anger or whatever? And and the same thing with lust and such as well. It's not just a matter of have you committed the act, but what about entertaining those thoughts in your mind that would one day could lead to an act, but it still is a, is a moment of unpeace, unshalom. 
right, in, in a person's life. So I, li- I like yeah. how you're tying that directly to Matthew. So it's not so much, uh, you know, a, a, a very specific quantity as much as uh, maybe deeper, you might say deeper righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that like might that. be a better way to, to, yeah. to capture that. Yeah, and um, I think that's why why you have those, uh, I, and I don't think that they're not really antitheses, but they're often called antitheses. I think that's why you have the examples that Jesus gives, because he's he's really trying to go deeper into a person's life than just the outward act itself. When uh, you know, when Jesus says, "Strive for the kingdom of God and His righteousness." And all these other things like your well-being and food and clothing will will follow. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we take enough time to stop and say, what does it mean to seek the kingdom's righteousness or the king's righteousness? Mm-hmm. How would you explain that in a sermon? Mm-hmm. How would you explain that to your students? Strive, seek, pursue. How yeah. do you pursue a king's righteousness? What does that mean? Well, part of what I'd do is I'd peel it back and say, um, wh- wh- "Where's the Old Testament language looks like?" And, mm-hmm. and there's a there's a passage in Deuteronomy. I don't remember the chapter and verse exactly, but it says, "Justice, justice shall you pursue." Yeah, you know. And there's this repetition. Yeah. And, and in Hebrew, when you have when you have repetition, usually that means emphasis, right? Yeah. So I would have to probably wrap in here a bit of talk about what justice is, because justice and righteousness are really two sides of the same coin, mm-hmm. in a sense. And But there is the idea of the king's righteousness, pursue his righteousness. And I would actually go back to the passage where um, you, you we've started at the baptism of Jesus, where it said, we've got to fulfill all righteousness. I, yeah, you didn't I answer that ta- one yet. I would take that as as sort of jumping forward or jumping backward to God's being right in the past and making his people right and saving them and redeeming them, hmm. but also moving forward to the future to what Jesus was about to do on the cross, right? And that that that, that the idea of his righteousness at that point is fulfilling all that God has been doing, uh, working, working together toward all that God has been doing in the past. We and and it's probably overused, but you know, joining God in His righteousness, and and that is not just a passive thing; that would be an active thing. That's what striving is about. We don't strive. You know, while we're sitting on the sofa, you know, watching Netflix or something, you know, striving involves action and activity, striving for justice, striving for the kingdom. Um, It's not that it's unattainable or that you can't know if you've attained it. It's just a different disposition than, okay, I'm just here to receive a gift, right? I think it is a gift, but at the same time, we've got to understand that gift within the context of all that God has been doing. God has been faithful all these years to his people and to his to his creation. And I think that that fulfilling all righteousness, Jesus just puts himself at that moment. Well, what I'm doing now is 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 joining God and fulfilling what God had all along meant all along for me in my life. And so Jesus's life and his baptism becomes the example for what our exam, our, our baptism is supposed to be, right? I know we take Protestants, as Protestants, we take Romans 6 and places like that, Paul's version of that. But 
But in most baptistries I have seen where it's immersion and there's a painting or a mural on the wall, you're in the Jordan River, right? Yeah. I mean, they have painted the Jordan River they on the Jesus wall. They have Jesus there. Yeah. They have Jesus there, right? So it's a reminder that when you're baptized, when you enter into baptism, when you enter into this covenant, you are entering into um, what Jesus has already in- inaugurated, what he's already begun. So, um, you know, I can't remember the last time I heard a sermon on righteousness. Um, but this is so important across the Bible, as, as you've talked about. It's important in the Old Testament, kind of, you know, right-wising or right-making activity of God, covenant faithfulness, um, you know, the pursuit of justice, do justly, you know, love mercy, walk humbly. It's important in Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, what message do you think the church and modern Christians today need to hear about dikaiosune, which is the Greek word for righteousness. We could translate justice. I like integrity, honesty. Mm -hmm, You've mm -hmm. used language of goodness. Um, Where does your mind go as you're thinking about, okay, thinking about people's life, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, what does what the Bible has to say about righteousness speak to their every day, what we think of as boring or mundane lives? Yeah. Uh, boy, I would long to be bored, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the last time I was bored. Uh, but, I mean, t- to me, life can be so incredibly exciting. Um, but 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 there are there are those sort of everyday things. And I see Sunday because being in the ministry, you see Sunday is kind of a work day. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you're, you're fully engaged normally that time. But I just see everything that's in Matthew is sort of pointing back to to the life of the, 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 the body, mm-hmm. the life of the mind. Um, th- this is not salvation. When, we t- when it talks about salvation, it's not. Uh, as as right and T. Wright and others have said, it's not about just uh, stamping your ticket to heaven. It's about uh, transforming yourself in this in this life. And mm-hmm. so I, I like the word that you use in in, in the book. I think in, in just a moment ago, integrity mm-hmm. that our lives on Monday look like our lives on Sunday. That that there should not really be any difference between those. So that. If we are prayerful people on Sunday, we should be prayerful people through the week, right? Yeah. Not just on Sunday. And I know that there are concentrated moments in worship and prayer and those kind of things on Sunday. But but those are the practices that will inform us, right? The practice of prayer. And, and Matthew, I mean, I, I love uh, chapter six because beware of practicing your righteousness in front of others so that you'll receive credit from them, right? right. Performance. Um, the way I've sort of sort of put it is is do righteousness for God's eyes only. That's right. Right. It's just really for God's eyes. We don't do it because you're looking or somebody else is looking or somebody's taking note. We do it as a as an offering to God. So we give to the poor. Um we we fast occasionally. We we pray consistently. And we often pray, quote, the Lord's Prayer. So those things are are the practices that should shape us, I think. And then all the teachings of Jesus throughout the gospel on discipleship are just brilliant ways of just bringing us back to a relationship, a, a connection to there. And I, I I find that I find that to be really helpful to think of it in those terms. And it doesn't mean that there aren't some mundane times and there aren't some troubled times 
because there are. I mean, you you know my life story of late about how yeah, yeah. we lost our, our middle son uh, three years ago. Mm-hmm. And we have agonized in that, through that. We still do that. Um, we liturgize aspects of, of mourning him. Mm-hmm. And we'll always do that. But that's just part of what, what happens in life. So we've asked ourselves many times, what does it mean to be righteous and yet be, in a sense, angry with God, frustrated with God over the fact that your, your adult son is not with you anymore? Hmm. And and you lose all that stuff. So I, that's the real stuff of life. People are losing their jobs and have lost jobs. Yeah. People have had COVID. I, I can't tell you how many people I know that I've talked to recently who've had friends and family that have died in COVID. You know, it's it 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 at any rate, it's um I think we have to sort of deal with what righteousness is, what rightness is. But doing the right thing in each and every situation is and doing so from that pure heart, doing so from a good heart or um, doing so from a heart and a life that is lived with integrity so that Monday looks like Saturday, it looks like Wednesday, it looks like Thursday. Yeah, as you're talking, it reminds me, you know, in the news, pretty much on a constant basis now, we're seeing mega churches, large churches embroiled in scandals, sexual, yeah. financial, um, yeah. uh, spiritual abuse, power issues. Um, I can't help but connect this to righteousness yeah. because Jesus is so often talking about integrity, authenticity, um, transparency, mm-hmm. um, humility. Exactly right. Uh, can you give me your, you know, quick diagnostic? You know what's going on. I mean, you know, this is kind of a reckoning. I feel like you know, all all over the place, especially in the American church, we're seeing a reckoning where we have this ability to communicate through the internet, widespread, share stories, and now we're, we're you know we're starting to uncover some of these things. This is a righteousness issue, but what 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 it is a righteousness? Your, what's issue. your take on on what's going on right now with the church? Yeah. You know, we, we've had kind of a, a little bit of a, a love affair with mega churches and all that they're able to accomplish and be in the reputations and such. Uh, one of the things I try to help students to remember is that, at least in the United States, you know, most churches are less than 100 people. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, and those are rural churches, city churches, et cetera. So the, the people that you train and I train, not everybody's going to be a mega church pastor. Mm-hmm. Right. And in part, uh, in part, I see sort of that waning now because of these integrity issues, Um, people getting into positions of power and abusing that power. This is a very human story, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, We might be uh, we might be, quote, saved to use the Baptist language. We might be going to heaven. We might be this and that and the other. But we still have a nature that we have to deal with, a, a nature that is that is proud, that uh, wants to see its advantage, wants to take control, that kind of things. And and I've been I've dealt with people like that all my life. I mean, both in colleges and churches as well. And it's very disappointing. We've we've got to figure out a way. And and sometimes churches uh, can be staffed in such a way, or have elder boards in such a way that they really do keep the the mega church pastor in check that this person is truly accountable to a group of people and truly listens to them and will change his or her behavior as a result of that. Um, 
But when they're sort of given carte blanche, when it, when it, when people say, I'm afraid of losing him because all these churches want him and or want her, those kind of things, those, those are just dangerous moments for the church. Mm-hmm. Because at any moment, we ought to be able to let go of these people, you know, and, and still be the church and not really be dependent upon their talent, their drive, their ambition, that kind of thing. So I I, I try to remind my students that you're not going to be a mega church pastor, you know, <laughs> 99.99% of you, uh, those of you who do, boy, you have got this greater, or, or you have a great, not necessarily greater, but you have a great responsibility. And yeah. so I, I really call on elder boards and deacon boards and staff to hold their pastors and church leaders accountable um, when behavior gets out of line whether it's an issue of power or fiscal or money or whatever it is. One of the things that I think is is big trouble, uh, Nijay, and I've been talking to a friend about this, is that very often in these mega churches, the budgets are invisible. I mean, people are, you know, and particularly the element of the budget of salaries. And part of that is because they don't want people to know that the Pastor makes four times what the average church member makes, right? That's a and transparency I that. issue. That's a transparency issue. I think we ought to be putting our our salaries out there, uh, every sort of jot and tittle, so that they can be scrutinized and criticized. And I, th- yeah, there are going to be some critics out there that won't, but but by and large, I think we're better off if we, in a sense, let people know we are people of integrity all the time. And and that includes that includes letting uh, t- where, where did, where's the money going, right? Where's the money going, and how does that work? So I think it's a question of money, a question of power. I mean, these things are are ancient. Uh, yeah, we have new technology today. We got great toys. I mean, we're talking on Zoom, and it's a great toy, great tool. But at the same time, the the lack of humility, the desire for power. Those are ancient, ancient. Yeah. They've been with humanity. And that's why the Bible's so relevant. That's right. Because it speaks Amen to those to things, right? I mean, as human beings, we're no fun, fundamentally, we're no different than we were 10,000 years ago yeah. in terms of these kinds of things. So I think that's why the ethical part of the scriptures, this righteousness, this integrity, this honesty, this fundamental goodness uh, is, is so crucial for our church leaders. Well, you know, as you know, Matthew very early became the most popular gospel and perhaps the most popular New Testament text uh, in those first few centuries, Mm -hmm. I think because of the very long teaching blocks on the Christian life. Um, As you know, uh, you know, the early church, when they catechized believers, they used three tools to teach the Christian way. They used the Ten Commandments to teach morality, they use the Lord's Prayer from Matthew to teach religion, and they use the Apostles' Creed to teach theology. And um, Matthew, you know, kind of became this kind of uh, mascot or chief of texts because of how much, you know, we might say red letters, uh, (laughs) you know, is in the Gospel of Matthew. Well, let's end on a positive note as we wrap up. Um, Sure. What's given you hope and encouraging you these days? Um. Despite what I was saying earlier, you know, about concerns about megachurches, I am more hopeful now about the people of God than I've, than I've been. 
Um, I've just seen some remarkable examples of righteousness, of integrity, mm-hmm. of love. Um, and, and these are hard times to express those realities. We're living in very polarizing times. And so I'm very hopeful about the people of God. Mm. And I'm not hopeful for, you know, talk about hope. We talked about hope on another podcast about the long, long, you know, thousand years from now. I'm hopeful for tomorrow Yeah, about what God's people are up to and what they're doing. It's really exciting. Uh, people can both disappoint us, but they can also thrill us. And so I'm excited about the people of God and excited about what we're doing here at the Linear Theological Library, of course, yeah. and all, all the different work aspects and, and uh, the, the, the new, the new uh, place we have over in, in uh, Oxford that we've establishing. So a lot of great things going on here. Great. Well, thank you, David, so much for your time. I encourage uh, anyone watching or listening to check out David's book, uh, Matthew Through Old Testament Eyes, or Gospel of Matthew, perhaps, Through Old Testament Eyes. Yeah, yeah and Matthew Through Old Testament He's working on a commentary in Matthew, uh, which I will uh, might be editing, so I'll, I'll get a chance <laughs> to see that before anybody. I'm excited about that. Thank you so much, David, for your time. Hey, it's great to be with you, Nijay. Blessings, and thanks for the great book, 15 New Testament Words of Life. It's a great book.